All right, all right. You are listening to the Sober Awakenings Podcast, a show designed to aid you in the journey of recovery and encourage you to embrace living in states of enlightenment and presence. The Sukina Method of Recovery is a 12-step program from an Islamic point of view. Whether you are struggling in the midst of pain or on the path of recovery, these sober awakening conversations and interviews are here to be a reminder and record of the power of permanent transformation. A new year has dawned on us. This is now the second year where we have all been under the pandemic that is this novel coronavirus. I apologize now if my voice seems a little off, but my family has all been recovering from this virus. You know, I remember when we were all first becoming aware of what this sickness was, that we needed to social distance, that we needed to put masks on, that we needed to get vaccinated, all of these different things that we needed to do in order to protect ourselves. This was the advice, the prescription, the recommendation of those who were knowledgeable, who were doctors, health agencies, and we took their advice, right? We, we tried our best not to get sick. And those of us who, who did get sick, well, we tried our best to not infect anyone else. We took medication if it was recommended, and sometimes even if it was not. We did what we needed to do in order to protect ourselves and those that we loved. You know, it's funny looking at it from the health standpoint because this is what we do with any kind of sickness or disease, right? When we're not feeling well, we seek out counsel and advice, and we follow that until we become well. But wellness isn't just something you do when you're sick. Wellness, holistic wellness, this is an approach that needs to encompass all time when we are in good health and when we are in bad health making sure we're getting exercise making sure our diets are good going to the doctor getting a physical checking our blood levels these are all things that we should do when we have good health not just when we are sick and you know i think the same should easily be said for our spiritual lives our souls right If we're only seeking out help and advice and a spiritual healing during times when we're depressed, we're lonely, we're struggling to make sense or find meaning in our lives, no, we should be always seeking out spiritual health and wellness. Following spiritual prescriptions and taking that kind of medication so that When we do encounter a rough patch, we are strong. We have an immunity already built up inside us. And it is much easier for us to go on. This past month, we had the special 
honor of hosting Dr. Moazin Atasi. He was a guest in our community for an extended weekend and spoke at a number of different places. Some previous guests, you may remember, Ramin Rahatsad and Omar Saeed, joined me and we sat down together, the, the four of us, for a conversation elaborating deeper on this topic of wellness, which I think is a timely conversation as we bring in this new year. Here is Sober Awakenings, Episode 5. Alright, I am gathered here uh, with some previous guests that we've had on. Sidi Omar Saeed, Ramin Rahatsad. We've had our special guest uh, visiting us in this weekend, Dr. Moazan Atasi. Uh, I'm going to have Omar introduce him real quick, uh, since you've kind of been our Moazan, I guess you could maybe say, <laughs> for the weekend. Inshallah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Yeah, so we're very honored. Alhamdulillah, we had Dr. Mazin visiting us from Chicago. Um, Dr. Mazin actually grew up in Indiana. Um, he studied over there initially and completed his undergraduate degree in biology at Indiana University. Um, he then ended up moving um, to Jordan, where he studied at Qasid Institute, and he also studied with other traditional Islamic scholars in the various Islamic disciplines. Uh, he returned to the United States, and then he completed his degree, his ND degree, as a naturopathic physician. Um, and then he started Forward to Health, um, which is a wellness and educational initiative in, based in Chicago um, that he currently runs, and um, he is visiting us now from Chicago. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Ramin, do you mind giving a brief summary of what has been covered so far? In the We've had two events, one at the ICCH Islamic uh, Community Center of Hillsborough and then one at MCCP Muslim Community Center of Portland. Um, Ramin? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. So yeah, we've been honored and blessed to have Dr. Mazin with us for the past couple of days. So on uh, Friday night, he was at ICCH, the Islamic Community Center of Hillsboro, and uh, he gave a, a great talk on kind of uh, hikmah, understanding kind of the, the principles and foundations of hikmah, and taking a holistic approach to uh, our, our way of being, being human, alhamdulillah. So, and he, we also had a, a youth session afterwards, so he, he had the opportunity to sit with a group of, of youth in the community and have conversation with them. Just kind of a dialogue and back and forth and engagement around uh, the importance of mental health. And today, Hamdana, he, he visited the Muslim Community Center of Portland and was able to give a talk on applying, um, living prophetically and applying kind of uh, the Sunnah through, through lifestyle medicine. Uh, so it was a great engagement and we're very honored to to have him continue here today, as well as tomorrow, inshallah, again at MCCP with with uh, the women of the masjid, inshallah, talking about the four temperaments, bidnina. And Dr. Mazen, I know tonight um, we we spoke. You spoke for almost like two hours, mashallah. Uh, it was a big honor, and it's just been a huge blessing to have you here in our community. 
one of the things that you didn't get to cover um, was on the importance of community for holistic well-being. Could you share a little bit of that with us? I know you think you said you had three points or so to talk about on that. Thank you. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa afdalu salati wa tamu taslim ala Sayyidina Muhammad Sayyid al-awwalin wa al-akhirin wa habibi Rabbil Alameen wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in Amma ba'd Yes, alhamdulillah, assalamu alaikum um, Yeah, we didn't get to talking about the connection and the community piece um, which alhamdulillah, nasib we're going to do the khatim now which is wonderful so that's good um, The three elements are actually connection of one to oneself one to the community and one to God Allah Jalla Jalalu but we can focus on the community part um, since we don't have much time and that's probably the linchpin in some, in some regard because you know I like to say the life force of the community is in the relationships what brings life and brings health and vitality to a community are the one-on-one rela- -on -one relationships that we have with one another and so as long as we have these types of natural, organic, loving, compassionate, concerning exchanges with one another. The community is healthy. And the Prophet ﷺ modeled that himself. It was not uh, often that he would end his day without visiting the sick, without visiting um, the poor, without checking in on people that needed to be checked in on. Uh, he was concerned with the community. He was concerned with people and what they needed. And that is something that I don't know we have been able to really capture mm -hmm. and embody. You know, maybe the imam goes and prays janazah or does a nikah or something, but how how can we as modern Muslims check in in that same way with the community? I don't know if it's even possible in modern kind of suburban communities and so forth. But there's something about relationships that we have to come back to for sure. And ultimately, a deen mu'amala, right? The deen is relational. And for example, the spousal relationship consists of half the deen. So there's something really important about the mirroring that happens in relationships that we get to know ourselves and get to know Allah Ta'ala in the relationships. And you'll find the first thing that the Prophet did was build a community. He gathered people. And, you know, one of the great powers of Islam is that he was able to galvanize people under one purpose, one meaning of La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah. And in that shared meaning and that shared purpose, he was able to move mountains. And he was able to change the world in a way that no other figure in history of the world was ever able to do. There's something about community. There's something about purpose of people resonating with one message that is so powerful and people use this to you know uh, in the shadow form as well you know people now can market to certain types of audiences and so forth and appeal to their lower desires and appeal to their you know lower passions and so forth and move them as a group in one direction or another and we have to be able to be aware of that too that we move in flocks we tend to move in groups and that if we can really become more conscious and intentional about moving in a prophetic manner, in, in, one, in one form or one semblance, that we're not as susceptible to move it, the movements of the other factors that, that surround us.
the believers are like one body. The Prophet ﷺ told us. And we have this like deep neurological, hormonal incentive to connect to one another. You know, we have this mammalian system inside all of us. We're animals in some sense, all of us. And animals lean in to other people. They're not isolationists. People, animals connect with one another. And so there's something about us when we are in states of fright, flight, fear, despair, disconnection, that there's this mammalian impulse, this animal impulse that Allah put in all of us to go to one another, to, to check it, to, to lean in for support, to get nasiha, to get compassion, to get support, to, to get help, excuse me. That is so vital that we have to have, you know I mean, for us to be able to have even just one person is like the whole world. I mean, if you have one good friend, it's like, it feels like you have the whole world. Like one, like, homie or home s. I don't know what the, you know, <laughs> homestess, I don't know, homegirl. <laughs> if you have one homegirl, that's it. It's like, you got everything. Like a khalil, you know, this idea of the khalil. That's just like pure love. Um, and subhanAllah, you know, you find people, fitri people, naturally organized in groups. They naturally formed families and communities. It wasn't something, I mean, maybe it, it would be on lines of like ethnicity or religion. Or, there's always a, a purpose behind it. But we naturally gather. Actually, I'm just reminded now of a book called Tribe. Have you, have you guys read Tribe by Sebastian Junger? Amazing book. He talks about how we naturally form tribes in dire circumstances. So it, he starts off the book talking about the early colonial people in this country that came, the 13 colonies. And a lot of them would like run into the wilderness and join the natives and just assimilate with them and marry and just disappear from, from colonial life. And those people, you know, would later speak to them and stuff like that, find them and say, I found peace, I found community, I found love, I found meaning and not living this colonial, you know, very type three Enneagram progress and purpose and development and achievement. No, like we're there's type nineness, we're connecting, we're slow, we're connecting with nature. I mentioned Enneagram now because we're talking about the Enneagram earlier a little bit here. But there's a different spirit. In a different um, organizing principle in a healthy relationship, in a healthy tribe. And we flock to that. We, we move to that naturally, right? A lot of people now that turn to um, alternative communities, intentional communities, which is actually a, a, a double-sided sword because it can also end up as cults. Yeah. That's a big problem, but... Um, What's the what's the imperative there? Like what's being what's what's operational inside is this longing for connection, <laughs> to be part of a group that's meaningful. Mm -hmm. That's what that really is about. Mm -hmm. No one wants to voluntarily jump into a cult. Mm -hmm. But so these are things that we have to identify and make use of in a healthy way, because we don't people go into cults inevitably get burnt out, inevitably get hurt, abused, come out disenchanted. I know people that went to Muslim Sufi cults and came out like questioning their deen. Like the whole deen 
becomes now shaky. Not just like the shaykh or tasawwuf or whatever. It's a dangerous thing. Right? So community can become also toxic. And we have to be able to identify the shadow side of that too. Because people will you know, take advantage of that for their own benefits. Consciously or unconsciously, shaitan is always at work here. Yeah, these are things that, you know, the, the jama'ah, in Allah, or the hand of Allah, yadullahi ma'al jama'ah. Uh, we're ahl sunnah wal jama'ah. There's something about jama'ah, the, the congregation, the community. That's so important, right? We, we can't have, like, rogue scholars talking about things and, you know, I'm the embodiment, I'm the, I'm the new embodiment of the sunnah. Like, no, 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 like, we, are you checking in with the, this whole bo other body of scholarship? So we have the community checks, the natural checks and balances, right? And that's why people that like you find in even unhealthy families, and I want to open this up, but I don't want to just keep ranting. I'm just kind of free, free flown here. But what's interesting with like healthy families, or unhealthy families, toxic families, that they're segregated from the community. They don't really have much engagement. So they don't know like what it's bad or, you know, they just assume everyone lives the same way. It's not until they actually like leave for like, usually for college or something, and they can like breathe a little bit more and they get some perspective. It's like, whoa, this is actually really messed up what I'm going through. It's not everyone's shared experience. So the community offers a mirror, right? An opportunity for one to refine oneself, to be objective, to so forth. And also find that belonging that we crave. Because mm -hmm. if we don't have that belonging, we don't have that connection, we will seek it in every which way, usually unhealthy ways. Right, in in bottle or t capsules or in smoking or in some addiction, some habit that's unhealthy. We'll find it and we'll try to substitute it in some way. Where we just really want to feel connected. That's really the underlying thing of addiction yeah. and trauma. Mm -hmm. Right, it's relationships that wound us, yeah. and it's relationships that heal us. Yeah. It's, it really comes back to that. There's a quote from Rumi, I believe it goes, uh, the cure for the pain is found in the pain itself. Yeah. And so sure. When you're talking about relationships there, it's like, well, a bad relationship can only be mended by a good relationship. The counterbalance there. Yeah. Rumi was a homeopath. Yeah. <laughs> Mashallah. He treated like with like. <laughs> yeah, your comment just reminded me... Um, Two two things. One is the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu mm. that uh, the believer is a mirror of the other believer. Subhanallah. The other one is the verse uh, in the Quran that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has joined the hearts of the believers. And the verse continues, Lo that if you had spent all the wealth that there was in the world. You would have been unable to join the hearts of the believers as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did. Um, and it, one of the things I always think about is uh, city planning and how our cities are designed today. Uh, they're really created for isolation. Um, the way that the cities are actually designed, especially in the suburban areas in the United States, um, they're created for people to become isolated. And uh, looking back at my own life experience, um, growing up in a very wealthy suburb, actually myself, um, and compared to, I've lived in a few different states now, alhamdulillah, but uh, 
one of the things I liked the most actually living in an apartment complex um, and then seeing people everywhere, basically. Compared to before, you have gated community and you have nobody on the street and nobody's, your neighbors have their own acreage and you have your own acreage and it's very, very disjointed and it's a very ajib way of living um, compared to being in an apartment. Actually, I find it's much more comforting to know that there's people all around you and you're always surrounded by community, at least to some degree, um, especially in the nice thing about where this specific apartment is that most of them are Muslim, um, which is very, very comforting, alhamdulillah. But uh, yeah, it's just so important to be surrounded by people. And one of the things being involved in, um, in the janazah work, we often find that a lot of people who are disconnected from the community, we only find their bodies because somebody reports you know, from work that it's been a week, nobody, he hasn't come to work. Mm. Or sometimes their bodies are found because there's a lot of smell coming from the doors of their houses or apartments, um, or their bills haven't been paid. And these people have no one to check up on them, subhanAllah. And then eventually someone breaks in the door and then the body's been rotting for a week, subhanAllah. And it's happened many, many times um, to Muslim brothers in our community, Muslim brothers and sisters who unfortunately became very isolated in their own ways. Um, so subhanAllah, being part of the community is something that we need to give us life as believers, subhanAllah. Even the, we look at the acts, there is individual acts, but then we have obligatory acts such as the Jum'ah, that a person has to be around other believers to complete the obligation, subhanAllah. So yeah. I'm reminded again that uh, the, the religion is not an isolated. We're, we're not supposed to be like monastic monks and hiding yeah. in a cell all the time, right? Yeah. Um, so speaking of kind of the, the topic that you're going to be speaking on tomorrow, which mm. is on the four temperaments, um, I'm reminded there's the melancholic, right? Uh, kind of the more introverted person. Um what kind of things can help someone like that build their own community? I know it's probably going to look different than an extrovert. Um, and then also uh, maybe if you can share a little bit, because I know that that's going to be a sister's event only. Um, so if you can share a little bit for the brothers or just the regular community. Well, they'll listen to this later, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> just for their own benefit, inshallah. So your question about the melancholics specifically? Yeah. The melancholics tend to be people that are really analytical. They're mind people. They're mental people. That's their gift and that's their curse in some regard. And so, yeah. So in some way, you know, we have to remedy. In terms of the four temperaments, the way that you remedy it is with the opposite. So the opposite of the melancholic is the sanguine. Right. So you, there is a youthfulness and a playfulness and a... Um, embodiedness in the sanguine that can be difficult for the melancholic and so being around people and being in places so for example like a trip to Hawaii like we were talking about earlier is something that the melancholic needs to it's like a remedy in multiple ways but like energetically for the melancholic becomes something totally balancing for them because they need more of that play that flow yeah. right that's for them like because earth the earth temperament is like a get kind of rigid it's cold and dry it's constricting 
there's a type of burnout that's oftentimes associated with it because you know you, you see the seasons kind of in flow. You, you, there's a spring, um, which is a sanguine, which is early chapters of life, and then you have middle age, which is the choleric phase. Right? It's about like till 30 years or so, and then 40. We all have all of these kind of operational within all of us. But then we have our own specific temperaments. But around 40, there's a shift into the, more the melancholic. So the melancholics really go deep into the melancholic, in the melancholic phase. Right? Just like the cholerics, during the choleric phase, go deep into work and goal-oriented kind of ways of being and so forth. Um, but the melancholics, they have a burnout. It's a type of introversion, a type of analyticalness to them. Um, they're looking at kind of the future now. Right, it's the end of like almost almost the end of the harvest. The the autumn is the harvest season. Now you're starting to plan for the next cycle, if you will, to happen the following spring. And so there's a type of um, even uh, concern for the otherworldly that happens. But if that's someone's nature, then even before they really need to be there, they're not in their fifties and stuff. They can be 20 and thinking existentially about all these things and it like totally swallows them and they're immersed in these riptides of feeling and loss and despair and depression and melancholy. For them, they need to be able to learn how to come back to their bodies and come back to what's real in the here and now and not worry about what's to come or what's past and the grief and the sorrow and the anxiety and the anticipation all of that. They need to be able to come into the moment. You know, like the idea of a Sufi Ibn Waqtihi. Like they need to learn to become Ibn Waqtihi. And maybe it's always tainted with a little bit of that melancholic blueness, and that's okay. It's not like going to be necessarily... Like this, Allah made them that way. And there's a gift to it too. There's a type of contribution, a gift, a, a virtue, a, you know, something beautiful about that. They make great poets, for example. Like they feel deeply, right? They feel deeply. And they're introspective. And they're interested in meaning. What's the meaning of this? But oftentimes what they have to do is find what's the meaning in this moment right now. And how can, can I begin to orient to it properly? And give it its fullness. And not just be thinking about meaning and getting lost in abstractions. That's the sort of thing, you know. Um, I encourage a lot of like beachy, peachy type of activities. I encourage um, burning of oud, coming back to the senses more than any any other uh, type, right? The two dry types, so summer and and autumn, hot, dry, choleric, and cold, dry, melancholic. They need more sensory kind of input. They get dulled by being so externally oriented. So it's going back to the body. That's really in a nutshell what that's about. One of the things I noticed uh, over the last couple of days, which is something I've observed in our community before, is that the women have been uh, excelling in showing up, attending, being active participants in uh, events in the community. Be brothers. What can we do to help encourage the brothers in community 
and uh, things like that. Good question. Um, I mean, I, just like any child, not to, you know, but just like any child you in school, who's a school age child that needs to be uh, engaged, you don't want to channel or force that engagement in a certain way. Child's not going to agree to that. Child's not going to want to be able, you know, to do, to, to do something that they don't feel compelled or feel called to do. Once people feel they can give a contribution from themselves that's real, they'll come running. So in some regard, we have to create the conditions for that. We have to create the conditions for which people will start showing up and giving. And my belief is that most men, they do already want to give. And they have a lot to give. Maybe no one's asked them to give. Maybe they don't even know what they have to give. I mean, this, it's a very complex matter. You know, it's like, this is what I deal with in my men's work, in my one-on-one -on -one sessions with people. People, I mean, men have been really beat up in this age. They really have. And, we, and you know, they've fallen short. We've fallen short as men, for sure. But the culture has been ruthless. So in some regard, we have to have compassion. We can't come and say, where you been? Shame on you. You know, you're, you're not, you know, I haven't seen you around. The women are better than and all of us and all of you. And you do that, you're going to lose the guy. He's not going to come to that. But that's not the Prophet The Prophet would come and say, hey, I heard you do amazing work in XYZ. I have this amazing idea. What do you think about this? One, two, three, four, five. I really see something amazing in what you have to offer the community. Something amazing that we can scale. And here's what, here's my vision. What do you think? And ask questions and like let them kind of build the vision with you. You engage them. Once you do that, it becomes a part of them. And then you don't have to force it. You don't have to shame. You created the conditions for them. You attracted them by calling into their agency, their own will and their own want and their own vision and their own desire to, to give. That's the manner that we have to take. But it becomes a challenge. People are, you know, in their own worlds and not everyone's going to be receptive to that initially. But people will come. You will get people coming eventually. Slow, slowly, slow, slow. I mean, even the prophets all said this message grew slowly. And it took time. Yeah, Sidi, what, what you're saying reminded me, um, I was listening to a Christian talk radio host, and he was analyzing why men like going to Sunday football instead of church. Mm. And uh, essentially, his argument in different terms was um, a lot of the discussions that were going on in, in the churches were to do with the Jalal, the Jamali aspect of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mm. and not to do with the Jalali aspect, yes. which men were connecting with 
in the football games that they yes. were watching. And subhanAllah, it had me thinking a lot about, uh, we were talking earlier about the Fatua project in the UK, um, and what I've tried to do here, and Brother Ramin and Brother Tim have helped as well with our youth group here with our men, is we try to do a lot more activities. Yes. Um, and I found that men respond a lot better as compared to doing some sort of class or doing some sort of talk. And then you can do the more active things for the men and the brothers and then sprinkle in those things slowly. And then people will slowly acclimatize. Um, I will say there is, uh, when I was growing up in Phoenix, there was a brother Hamza Abdullah who actually just moved back and he was a Cardinals football player. Mm-hmm. And um, he used to have a football training camp at the masjid. So everybody would come and pray Fajr. And then he would run a training camp for the youth every Saturday. Um, and he, this is during his NFL career. Mm-hmm. So he's a full football player and all, all of those things. But he would have that aspect. Um, and then I remember I went with uh, Sheikh Qasim. We would do archery in Seattle. Um, so things like that, incorporating, we talked about bringing Imam Dawood Yassin and doing those types of activities. Uh, I think that's definitely a key to engaging the brothers in the community. Um, and I think even in our mushes, there is a lot of discussion as to the Jamali aspect of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not necessarily as much about the Jalali aspect, which appeals more to the men. Excellent point. Yeah, I totally agree with you. The, the men want to move. They want to uh, engage, action-oriented. So even like the Fatuba program that we were talking about, what I liked about it, I was so impressed about it when I first was introduced to it. This is Sheikh Ibrahim Otsi'ifu's group in the UK, uh, Greensville Trust. They have maybe one or two lectures a day, but right after Fajr, they're doing jiu-jitsu, they're rolling for an hour, and they have breakfast, and then They'll alternate with the women in, in terms of like horseback riding, archery, whatever else they're doing that day. There's also arts and calligraphy. They have a master calligraphy kind of person there. And then they have like a nighttime thicket and with like, like that. And then they're just hanging out together. The overemphasis on the activity and the engagement and kind of just the normal kind of deadest structure appealed to me. Because I've been in retreats where it's like six lectures a day, like the rahla thing, which is, I mean, we were just talking about rahla earlier, it changed my life, thankful for it, but it's a good maybe as a loading dose, but like to keep it going, you can't be doing six lectures a day retreats for three weeks, like this is burnout, you're going to burn out. Mm-hmm. You have to make it more appealing and more, just more balanced, right, this whole idea of balance. So there's something about engaging. No doubt. And there's an aggression to the men. And we, like, we're competitive in sports and wrestling. And this is the sunnah. The sahaba would, would wrestle. And there's a story of Hassan, Sayyidina Hassan and Sayyidina Hussein, you know, where they were wrestling. And the angels would come and, you know, they would come and egg on and cheer for one or the other. It's really amazing, you know. So these are things that were happening in the Masjid of the Prophet They were throwing arrows, they were wrestling, and they were studying, and they were eating together. And there was a whole life, they lived together. The Masjid was the hub. The Masjid was the hub, and then, you know, they went to their families and stuff, but then next day Fajr, they were there, and they were shooting arrows. 
and they were having a breakfast, having some bread or whatever, and then going about their days and coming back for Luhr, coming back for Asa. I mean, it was just, they were threading in and out their lives in the masjid and doing everything together. Whether that's sustainable now in the modern world or not, I don't know, but we have to be able to kind of thread in more of these activities. It can't just be salah and zakah seminars and even healing seminars or whatever. I mean, it's not going to be... As we saw, you know, this weekend, alhamdulillah, there was a nice turnout, but it wasn't like a wow kind of uh, turnout. And most men, I've found, are not as interested in this stuff as women are. Right? But if we were to bring in a type of futuwa element to it, more would come. Mm-hmm. I know for a fact more would come, no doubt. Good point. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about um, the connection with Allah. You did mention that is one of the important aspects in terms of uh, the topic of connection. There's people here that can speak much more eloquently and truthfully about that than I can. Um, but in ultimately, as Muslims, we are people that believe in La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, and these are realities. These are not just slogans. This is the, fa- the fabric of reality. Allah is wajibul wujud. He is the necessarily existent. He is haq. He is al-haq, the real or the true. And the more that we're able to have relationship with reality, our reality and the reality, the more that we're coming back to life, the more that we come back into what's appropriate and what's real. Allah is al Hay, He is the living. And He bestows life. And in some way, there's, you know, the art, the signature of His Hayul Qayyumiyah in everything that exists. Right? It's a type of life force. One of the ulama called it Sarayan al Hayat. Like the flow, the life force of, of that flows in all creation. And this is something that once you begin to intuit, you can begin to see it everywhere. See it in like trees, you see it in plants, and all living creatures, all people. And that becomes just, again, the connection between the relationships with people, relationships with Allah Ta'ala. You see Allah everywhere. You have this relationship with Allah everywhere. Right? You see His shadow, if you will. You see His, you see his light. You see His creative agency in all things. And once you're there, and this is the journey for all of us, I don't think there's a there anyways. It's just a constant process of growing closer to it. Things fall into place. Small things that bothered you or troubled you at some point in some phase of your life seem more minuscule, more mild. But ultimately, you know, find out that God La ilaha illallah. There's no God but God. You have to know this. This is what this is all. This whole project is about. And that's what the Mashayikh and that's what the Sufis all talk about. 
it's not just the books of theology, it's not the books of fiqh talking about the rules, it's how do you have relationship with him? Jalla Jalalu. And Ta'abudullah ka'annaka tarahu. What is Ahsan in the Hadith of Jibril? And Ta'abudullah ka'annaka tarahu. When lam ta'kun tarahu fa'innahu yarak. That you worship Allah, Ahsan is that you worship Allah as if you see him. You witness him. And if you don't see him, to know that he sees you. It's a relationship. You're in contact. There's a dynamis between you. And that's what's different between you know, ma'rifa and ilm as well. Ma'rifa, arifan, is a type of experiential knowledge. Where ilm is, can be a, a type of didactic knowledge or theoretical knowledge. Arifan is that it's an experience. It's, an, it's in the hal. And the hal is something that is a constitutional state of your wholeness, of being. That's a true hal. So when you know Allah in that fullness, you feel it in your bones, you feel it in your muscles, you feel it in your heart, your emotions, your thoughts. It's reflected in the whole. And when we're not there yet, when we're not kind of healthy and developed in that way, matured maybe in that way, it's just like a theoretical concept. <laughs> or something that we're trying to like, we worship Allah in some certain ways, but it's not landed in that same way. It hasn't matured or it hasn't come to fruition in that way that we want. But as we develop that relationship with Allah Ta'ala, to know that He's Rabb, He is the one that is taking you through stages. That's what the Rabb does. The Rabb cultivates. The Rabb is the one that takes you through stages. Al-Ilah is like the, the un, almost the unknowable. God, you know, he's the transcendent, the one worthy of worship. The Rabb is the one who has relationship, if you will. That's the aspect of him that's relational. The Rabb. So that's the connection to Allah Ta'ala. I mean, it's at the end of the day, it's like this almost no-brainer. It's almost like, like for the Muslim, it's like, how can we talk about health and connection? And not talk about Allah. You know, and dhikr is that one way that we are able to remember Allah Ta'ala. Dhikr, like to remember. To remember. It's like when I think of remembering, it's like remembering, like bringing parts back, like members coming back, of your, like your limbs coming back to your body. You're remembering something, you're coming back to a, a wholeness. My limbs were away from me, now I'm back. I'm remembered. I mean, this is something that's so important for us. We remember Allah, we remember reality, but our true, what we know in our hearts and our fitrah, that knowledge of alastu bi rabbikum. That knowledge is already inside all of us. And what this whole thing of Islam and this whole thing of relationship is how is supposed to be doing is allowing us to actually peel back the layers. We can get back to that. What we already carry inside all of us and already know. And that's what this whole is what community this is what this is about. I mean look at the hal that we we're able to kind of just drop into right now together. If I was in my hotel room right now, I would have been doing this. I'd probably be watching Dumb and Dumber on the TV or something. <laughs> actually I wanted to ask um I know we weren't able to do the the vicar this morning that was originally planned 
And um, uh, so Omar's over the past year been introducing a, a Shadili uh, a weird, I think, um, to our community, which has been a huge benefit. And there have been so many people that have uh, missed it when you haven't been leading it, I know. Um, as well, uh, my wife and I are trying to incorporate um, the uh, Weird Latif, uh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf is uh, got a kind of translation and commentary, I think, on that that we've been yes. working with a lot. Um, I don't know what your kind of planned talk or there was for this morning, but um, if you could say some things about that and the importance of it as well, that would be of benefit, Shana. Yeah. One of the things that I remember one of my sheikhs shared one day that really stuck with me about dhikr. He said, Dhikru manshurud bidaya. Dhikr is like the hallmark of wilaya, of sainthood. Mm. It's like the mark of sainthood. That if you do dhikr, like you are of people dear to Allah Ta'ala. That, that's just one of the signs. Not that we get all inflated about it. It's like, oh yeah, I'm beloved. Because they're stations. But like, it's a great sign. Right? Because Allah Ta'ala tells us in the Quran, Ya amanu, kathira. All you who believe, remember Allah, a mighty remembrance. A lofty remembrance. Kathira. Plentiful remembrance. And that's the state of the Sahaba when you read about their dhikr. Like, <laughs> Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu would do so much dhikr of la ilaha illallah, la ilaha illallah, la ilaha illallah, la ilaha illallah. That it's narrated that when he would use the restroom, he'd have to put rocks in his mouth so that he wasn't doing dhikr while he was washing himself. Because it's just so perpetual for him that he just, oh. and then he's done, put la ilaha illallah. It's narrated also Sayyidina Umar, has his favorite dhikr was Allahu Akbar. Which is interesting, these people, I mean, you can kind of see, you know, yeah. that was what helped him because he was Kabir. Right? Sayyidina Umar was Kabir. But what helped him in his relationship with Allah? Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. God is greater. Right? Sayyidina Umar. The companion Omar ibn Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu, may Allah have mercy on him. Be pleased with him. Um, he was one of the more masculine people we can we can say in, in history. Uh, in form, in demeanor, in character, in his nature. Um, and so his dhikr of choice, his weapon of choice, maybe we can say even. Um, was to remember that God was greater than him. That helped him. And these, these medicines and all these adhkar, and the big sheikhs will individualize the dhikr. They'll give a general dhikr, and then they'll give you something specifically. Like, at some point, I asked my sheikh for something, and he told me, you read... I have to get into the mindset here. What is it? Ya quwi, ya aziz, ya alimu, ya qadir, ya sami'u, ya basir. Those six names of Allah Ta'ala. At that one stage, like that's what he told me to read. Ya Qawiyu, Ya Aziz, Ya Alimu, Ya Qadir, Ya Sami'u, Ya Basir. That helped me a lot. But these are certain things. You know, Sayyidina Uthman, Radiallahu Ta'ala Anhu, would say, SubhanAllah. 
excuse me. Subhanallah, subhanallah, subhanallah. And then Sayyidina Ali, karamallahu wajhahu, would say, Alhamdulillah. He was of the Hamadun. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. So, dhikr, and we have la hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. There is no power, strength, save through Allah Ta'ala. And hasbunallah wa na'mal wakil. And you have the names of Allah. And then you have, of course, salawat on the Prophet Sallallahu which is perhaps one of the most perfect forms of dhikr. Because remembering both Allah and the Beloved Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And there's healing in the salawat. Oftentimes for anxiety, I tell people, 100 salawat a day. Are you doing 100? 300. You doing 300? 500. Just increase. But that's a great medicine. Probably one of the greatest medicines. Mm -hmm. If not the greatest medicine. A salawat. On the Habib. I've seen people, I've heard of people, tell me firsthand of taking a sick child that was chronically ill and taking them to a burda recital and in the hour there i would never in a million years call them a liar these are not people of of lying he said wallahi i did not leave that majlis of my child was entirely cured of this like month-long infection or something so these are things that are real you know we can chalk them off to miracle and stuff like that, but ultimately, it's, this is the power of remembering Allah. It's not a miracle. It's just, this is haqiqah. This is what Allah makes available to us when we're sincere. And we remember Allah. And I think of it as like, you're stepping into reality when you remember Allah. Like, you're, you're, just, you're stepping into reality. Like, we're all in our delusions of separateness and one, you know... Uh, separation from ourselves and one another and from God and doing things and we have our own power and I have agency I talk about agency a lot with my work and I believe it's important that we have agency as human beings Allah gave us that but ultimately it's like we come back to reality when we say la hawla wa la illa billah. I got nothing ya Allah you're the one that gives me tawfiq I have no power no strength to do anything except through you and it's like we come out of, like the clouds part, we step out of that darkness and we come into a presence with Allah Ta'ala, with we, we are in reality. And sometimes I tell, you know, I, have, I tell people, um, like sunbathing. It's like, sit on the beach, like even close your eyes, and this is actually one of the, one of the Shadri sheikhs give this metaphor, or give this kind of imagery that, you know, you're sitting on like a sand dune, like on an island, and there's this blue waters and blue sky, and then the name of Allah in Arabic, written in white, in the in the sky, and you just focus on that. It's powerful. If you if you try that, it's very powerful because you just find yourself just totally immersed in that presence. As you practice it, as you drop into that. And eventually, the whole point is that you're able to hold dual consciousness. You're able to be present with Allah Ta'ala. And be present with people around you. And not have one diminish the other. And that's really, like, that's, there's a lot of, uh, like, tamkeen there. There's a lot of, like, 
groundedness there, and a maturity there, spiritually. That you don't let one fail the other. Because people, people get lost in the dhikr. They actually go crazy. There's people that have done so much dhikr that they actually lose their senses. They lose their alkas. It's not a good thing. You don't want... Ever at some point when we first started taking the path, people, friends of mine were like, Ya Allah, make me majdub. I was like, what are you doing? What are you talking about? You can't be asking Allah for that kind of stuff. The shaykh was got, he got so mad at him when he heard it. He's like, don't you ever ask that. I think he was majdub for even asking for being, being majdub. Yeah. But like, careful what you ask for. Because it's, it's not a... It's a higher state to be actually a haqil. And to just hold both. And not be overwhelmed. You know, somebody asked Shaykh Abdul Rahman al-Shaghuri, who was a great Shahadri Shaykh. And they were in Medina, I believe. And there was a, a gathering of all of the Sufis and so forth. And, and someone asked why the Shahadris were not swaying. Everyone was like swaying and maybe like making movements and stuff like that. The Shahadris were not. You know. And then someone asked him, why are you... Uh, Shadri is not like moving and swaying and all of the ecstatic movements. Mm-hmm. He says, the Shadris, they control the Had. The Had does not control them. Like they're in control of the Had. Mm-hmm. They're the ones in control. And you find the real, like the real men of Allah, they're sober. I've heard Dr. Omar Farouk Abdul tell me, tell us in a group, like, <coughs> studying grammar, Ajurumiya, is intoxicating. So, yeah. Ajurumiya? <laughs> like, really? <laughs> Not like Ibn Arabi, Makiya, <laughs> or something. Ajurumiya? <laughs> that's the man. That's the man of Allah. Like, it's in that. It's in the small. It's in even the tool. Ulum al-Ala, the tool knowledges that they see, the deep wisdom and the presence of Allah Ta'ala. And then everything becomes a thikr. This is everything. becomes The fatha on top of a certain word in the Qur'an becomes this endless ocean for you. Right? There's a bird that flies outside your window. becomes this moment of awe for you. But it's a process. It's a process. We all have to do the kid until our heart wakes up. Jazakallah care for um, all of your your hakam, your wisdom uh, you've shared with us today, uh, this weekend, and uh, inshallah, this is a relationship that we can continue. Uh, I know you'd love to see Portland. I think it sounds like in some better weather. <laughs> Early January is not our peak. <laughs> so inshallah, perhaps we can make a round two of this uh, later in the year. Inshallah. inshallah. Um, actually, I'm going to ask Ramin, would you close us with a dua? Inshallah. Alhamdulillah. إياك نعبد وإياك نستعين إهدنا الصراط المستقيم صراط الذين أنمت عليهم غير المقتوب عليهم ولا الضالين الحمد لله اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم 
Ya Allah, we thank you for the time that you've given us together here in Portland. We pray that you guide our hearts, that you connect our hearts to each other, that you connect ourselves with ourselves and with each other, with our families, with our communities, with, with the earth, with our environment. We pray that you connect us closer to you and your beloved messenger, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Ya Allah, we pray that you help us, help us to restore ourselves to health and vibrancy. We pray, we, we pray that you, that you ground us and that you keep us healthy and happy and connected to one another. Ya Allah, Ya Allah, please, we pray that you forgive us our sins and our shortcomings. Ya Allah. Ya Allah, allow us to connect and to be to be merciful with each other and to be fluid with each other and to be forgiving with each other, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, allow us to be more human. Ya Allah, allow us to see the truth as the truth and accept it and embrace it. Ya Allah, and allow us to see falsehood for falsehood and reject it and turn away from it, Ya Allah. Ya Allah. Ya Allah, make us whole, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, you are you are a creator, you are a protector, you are a guide. Ya Allah, guide us and make us whole. I mean, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Allahumma salina Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala ali Muhammad. Ameen, Ameen. Jazakallah Dr. Mazana, you have uh, the website Forward to Health, correct? ForwardToHealth.com, yes. Yes, that's the best place if anyone wants to contact yes, you. Yes, yes. Jazakallah khair. Thanks for having me. As-salamu alaykum. Just recently I had the birth of my first child and as is tradition, one of the first thing that the father does is he, he takes the child and he recites into their ear the Adhan, the call to prayer, the Allahu Akbar, a declaration of the greatness of God the Jaharatain, the testimony of faith, declaration of the oneness of God, and the magnification of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. And then, of course, the, the announcement, the initiation, and the invitation to the prayer, which is, of course, the invitation to success, salvation. It's a beautiful type of dhikr in itself, and, you know, in, in greater litanies, there's a weird one will recite these things among many other beautiful magnifications upon the divine name, salawat, praise and blessings upon the Prophet, verses from the Quran, dua that are passed down to us in the Hadith, now this is the tradition of our religion, of course, that this is recited to the first thing that the the infant hears. Not only, of course, does it instantly create a bond through the voice, but there is a deep spiritual meaning, a spiritual medicine 
in this common recitation and declaration of the truth. One of the standard daily spiritual medicines, of course, within Islam is the uh, longer litanies, athkar, weird durs, that that one can recite. These, of course, include, among some of the things I just mentioned, even more magnifications upon the divine names, ayat from the Quran, dua from the hadith that were passed down to us, and of course, magnifications, blessings, and praise sent upon the Prophet himself. Peace and blessings upon him. You know, as our family recited these to our, our, our newborn, every single time we would get to the salawat, the, the, the praise upon the Prophet, Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Nabina Muhammad, Every single time this would occur, we would recite this maybe a hundred times. Before we would come to a conclusion, I, I would see see this, this beautiful child in my arms completely fall asleep. And this wouldn't happen just once. This has happened every single time. SubhanAllah. And so I, I encourage you all, if you have not yet started a spiritual medication, any kind of practice that you can begin to incorporate into your life, don't wait for times to become tough and take it up for a day or two as a crutch to help you get by. Incorporate it into your life. And this is the path towards becoming whole. If you would like to learn more about the Sakina method of recovery, please reach out. And of course, if you are struggling anywhere along the road to recovery, the Sakina method will aid you in providing a foundation for moving forward. And I remind you as I remind myself that Allah does not burden us with more than we can bear. Alhamdulillah. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Mazen Atasi, for joining us. And thanks, of course, to Ramin Rahatsad, Omar Saeed, for coming back. Kind of this roundtable discussion almost that we had. It was truly a wonderful thing. You can connect more with Dr. Mazen at forwardtohealth.com. And you can find him on all social medias at Forward to Health. New episodes and perhaps a new season of Sober Awakenings are right around the corner. So do stay tuned. Be sure to follow and subscribe and set yourself up for any notifications. And that way you can be alerted as soon as the next episode drops. This episode was recorded in Omar Seed's apartment. Special thanks again. Music was by Sound the Encounter. Our guest today was Dr. Mazen Atasi. Sober Awakenings is a production of the Sakina Method of Recovery, and I am your coach, Tim Brennicke. 
May the peace and blessings of God be with you all.